Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, let's kick this thing off. Welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. Uh, For all the listeners out there, it's been a while since we've done an interview, so today we decided to shoot for the stars and bring on the one and only Mr. Richard Baxter, president of AES Drilling Fluids. Richard, thanks for coming on to the show. We finally made this happen. How are you doing this lovely day? Doing great. You know, it's uh, got the Astros jersey. This is October 29th, game yeah. six tonight. Oh, it's a big uh, one. I know everybody's pumped. Yep. I, I think uh, we need to hurry up and get this done so I can uh, send out an announcement that we might have a, a late start to the office tomorrow morning. What do you think? I love it. And that, you know, that just goes to show all the listeners out there what kind of culture we have here at AES. Not only do we, we're the hardest working mud folks in the industry, but we also take care of our people and make sure that they stay happy. So uh, I applaud you, Mr. Baxter, for always keeping this place in check. And uh, just uh, just from the top down, the culture is, is really set. You set the precedent. So we appreciate that. Um, so, and obviously for the listeners out there, that was Mr. Baxter. We also have, who, who, is, who are you there uh, across from me? Well, I'm still Matt Offenbacher. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's good to be here. And uh, certainly, um, I think we're going to have a really good conversation uh, with, you know, Baxter is our boss. He's the president of AES. He's designs a lot of our products. He's developed a lot of things. But um, we'll, uh, we'll get open here in a second, and you'll get to hear more from the man himself. Perfect. Well, uh, Mr. Baxter, it's funny. We've actually known each other for almost a decade now. Mm-hmm. We met back in uh, 2010. I had sh- got shipped down from CES to Cannonsburg to help the folks out there. And uh, yeah, it was, is, we, it was at the time when the Marcellus in the Northeast was kicking off. And we went in there with our ABS 40 and just started rocking the world out there. But uh, before we get more into the specifics, uh, it's been a good ride. I love what, you know, what we've done over the decade and uh, just a lot of great things to look forward to in the future. But what I'd really like to do is, is uh, to give the listeners an idea. Why don't you uh, sort of run through your journey and uh, give everyone a trip down memory lane and just kind of give everyone uh, an idea of the journey, uh, you know, starting where you're from and how you got in the oil field and where you're at today. Hodor, let me think. <laughs> uh, well, I've been in the business now 38 years in the oil and gas business. Mm-hmm. Um, Roughnecked offshore, uh, almost had a chemical engineering degree, uh, classic nerd growing up, um, got an associate's degree, took a, extra classes there, you know, went back to school, bachelor's, master's, petroleum engineering, worked some more in the industry, went back to school, worked on a PhD in petroleum engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, I finally quit. I think I had something like 304 hours of engineering and sciences. <laughs> What's a typical know? amount of hours for the young listeners out there? Oh, for one degree, you're talking about 140, I think. So, wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I had like eight years worth or nine years worth, <laughs> which, you know, I, I should have graduated, I guess, in 82. And I finally left school in about. 91, the last time I was there. So I was in and out quite a bit there for a whole decade. Yeah. 
So, but growing up, obviously, before you even went to post-secondary, you said you were always kind of a nerd, you were always studious. Did engineering and fluids and chemistry, was that always something that interested you? Because I know you've got a lot of hobbies and you've got a lot of different interests outside of oil and gas, but did you ever know growing up that oil and gas would be the career path that you'd take? Actually, uh, I always grew up saying that I would not get into oil and gas business. (laughs) Um, Okay, why is that? I I was... uh, very much interested in science, and uh, uh, I was going to be a chemical engineer or else a nuclear fusion engineer. Hmm. Um, you know, I was like 70, in 72, was that the Arab oil embargo and gas prices went sky high, and I was just about to get a, a vehicle and made a big impression on me. Hmm. Uh, so I was going to be a, a chemical engineer and get oil out of oil shale. And it was known back then that there was more hydrocarbon in the Rocky Mountains in their oil shale that no one even talks about today. Interesting. Uh, you probably didn't even know it exists, did you? There's huge amounts that we don't we don't go after because it's um, it's uneconomical and it's an environmental nightmare. Okay. But it was on the table back there back then, and and I was just thinking that chemical engineering would be a better degree plan. Interesting. You know? Uh, but also grew up in agriculture. You know, I love uh, horticulture. I, one of my hobbies is having, uh, well, is crossbreeding roses. Uh, yeah. And uh, I do that and got a few other things in the fire that I'm working on, you know. Yeah. Do you monetize the crossbreeding or is that just a personal hobby? I have not yet. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of us uh, uh, that do this. There's a nice little uh, website for rose hybridizers. and. I would say one out of uh, one out of thirty of us, yeah, make money on it. Interesting, but know? it's a passion, so obviously the monetary yeah. value means nothing, and that's it's the neat passion. part about it. Yeah, it's like it's like you're developing your own kids, you know, your own babies, <laughs> and yeah. you watch them generation. I've got some this spring that uh, I planted this this spring, and now they're I can tell what they're going to be, huh. and they are fourth generation Baxter roses, which is pretty cool. Wow, your wife must love you. <laughs> well, one of the one thing that I, I think is interesting is, I mean, we've sort of alluded to it. You're you're such a tinkerer in so many different things, and what's been so interesting is, um, you know, I've never, I only really had a boss who developed most of the products that the company uses and takes an active role in tweaking and dialing it in. Um, and I feel like that's true for you, no matter what. If you're trying to model something. On the economic side of things, if it's the chemical side of things, if it's making sausage, there's <laughs> yeah. there's a spreadsheet, there's a model, there's a tweak, and and you you seem to never tire of that. And do you feel like you've just always been that way? Was there something earlier in life that you started playing around with and decided, um, you know, I really like this, and and started messing around with other things? Well, there is, uh, but I'd rather not go into that one. No, <laughs> okay. That's the suntan oils. I'll bring y'all some. Your your beard oil. Yeah. The yeah. story relates to that. <laughs> okay. It goes nice. way back. Of course, you know, I go back to the age of uh, slide rules. Yeah. And I witnessed the first handheld calculator. So I remember the first time I saw Lotus 123 spreadsheet. I was like, oh my, what is that? Mm. You know, a couple of Norwegian transfer students had it. And I had him over, over to my class late one night. We were working on some projects. 
And then I got XL back when it was just on a, an Apple, like in 88. No kidding. Yeah. Huh. And then I just went crazy with that. I loved it. Yeah. Um, when I went to work for Enron Oil and Gas, I was an XL Windows guy. They were on another system that went by the wayside. After about four months, my wife called me and said, Maybe down at the computer store. And I said, why, darling? She said, I want you, if you want to pick out the computer I'm buying you, you better come because I'm buying you a computer for the office. So I had my own up there, you know. Yeah. And the current CEO, Mr. Bill Thomas, was my VP, my boss. He came by there one day after a couple of weeks and said, Baxter, what's going on? What are you doing with your own equipment? You know, we can't afford the equipment here. Yeah. And I said, Mr. Thomas, I'm, I'm an Excel guy. And you'll be Excel. The whole company will be. It's a matter of time. Just don't make me go backwards. Let me pay for my own equipment until it happens. Yeah. And it eventually happened. No kidding. And <laughs> so I, ever since then, every problem I get, whether it's, oh, I think I'm going to invent some sausage recipes. Well, I'll study it for a month and make different formulas on an Excel spreadsheet. Or, yeah. Or I'm going to mix some suntan oil. Or I'm going to quit create a berry jam. With Merlot as mm. the base, did that last year. We yeah. all remember the berry jam. Was, Baxter shares these things, and it's wonderful. Yeah, and you make your own potpourri as well, or potpourri, right? Yes, potpourri, do that. Uh, the rose oils, been nice. <laughs> yeah, the rose fragrance, that was a fun one. Uh, I, I've researched and found three or four different assays of the the essence of rose fragrance that showed the, the molecular concentrations Acquired those molecules and then mixed them together. And oh, my Lord. Yeah. That was something to behold. Interesting. Yeah. So you're a man of many talents, obviously. And, uh, you know, that ties back into, you know, what we do here within drilling fluids is creating different, uh, you know, products and, and, you know, blending chemistries and all that sort of stuff. So how did you go from, because you said you worked at Enron and I know you've got a history with operators. When did you make a jump and why did you make the jump into drilling fluids? Well, when I worked when I worked offshore, um, I got to be chain hand because the other guys we they a drilling crew needed chain hands, and I started as a roustabout out there. Mm-hmm. They didn't have anybody that could throw the spinning chain. The previous guy had had an accident and died, and um, I told the tool pushers that that it's nothing but conservation of angular momentum throwing the spinning chain mm-hmm. that I bet I could do it. And he threatened to put me on the standby boat if I couldn't. <laughs> well, I could. I was a natural. So yeah. I got to skip uh, lead tongs and backup tongs and work the shell shakers and mud pits. Okay. So I, w- I went directly messing with the mud. And at that time, I had over 140 hours of engineering and science. So I was all into the properties of the mud and what's going on. It was fascinating me. Yeah. Yeah. So... Mud was my passion, and then when I went back to school uh, and I did my master's thesis in in hole cleaning, mm-hmm. uh, drilling fluid type stuff, too. Okay. So I was a mud guy yeah. the whole time, and then when I worked for EOG, I got heavily into designing PDC bits, uh, but I never lost my passion for mud. I got you. you know? So... Uh... You know, so then you went to work for EOG, and then, you know, at what point 
did because did you go right from there over to FMI or was there a transition with no, another? I was, I was with EOG and and that's uh, where I met Jim Sherman, the, the yeah. owner of FMI. Uh, we were we had designed this mud system that replaced oil based mud and would drill as fast as oil based mud with a PDC bit in the hole down in South Texas. Uh, by using uh, a terpene called delimony, hmm. uh, and also tweaking the mud system so it would function properly. Right, it was it was a real thrill to do that. Um, so Jim and I became quite close. I was I was the drilling engineer involved, and he was he was working for the mud company. And then I, I left South Texas, was in Tyler, and I used Jim's consultants. So we were still buds, and and I trusted him. And one day he asked me if I'd come to work for him, and I, my wife needed to come back to Houston. Mm-hmm. We we had dodged Houston, and by that time she had two children. Her parents were getting older; they were following us around the country. You know, she's she was from Tyler. She left Tyler to come to Corpus. They came to Corpus, then we went back to Tyler. They went back to Tyler, and I was like, you know, this has got to stop. The madness must stop. <laughs> right. Let's go to Houston. And that way they can settle in and finish their lives, and we can always get a job here. So that's kind of how it went down. Nice, nice. So yep. what did you do when you first came over with Jim? I mean, you were obviously a small, relatively small company at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, we were. And as a matter of fact, we were really an engineering consulting firm. Okay. Um, I had a couple of products that I'd had Jim put together for me for my personal use uh, we had, and, and, and I cooked up a couple of more. And you know, we it just started gaining traction. Yeah. Uh, and then we had, I had drilling consultants for EOG, and they would fuss about problems and wanting products. And I would put together a product. We have one now called Silver Seal. I studied all the the poor throats I could find information of the formations that EOG was drilling at the time, and and mixed that 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 product up. Mm-hmm. If you've seen, it's got like five different particle distribution curves. Yeah. A lot of science behind that product. Oh, it's a great and, product. We still use it today, in fact. Well, good, good. Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of thing. And, and, it, and you know, as each product grabbed hold and it just kind of built momentum. And then we had, a, we had an ROP enhancer that worked similarly to the terpene product I talked about earlier, the delaminating product, except it used a, a surfactant. Uh, to keep the the oil on the diamond table of the PDC bit and so on and so forth. Uh, the EOG liked it so much, they said, Baxter, why don't you try making us an oil mud system out of this base oil? Mm. And that's where ABS-40 started. Okay. And then that kind of led to, well, if you're going to do the oil mud, then go ahead and do the whole mud job. Right. So then we started doing full muds, uh, and then after that, it's kind of history. Right, right, right. So you come on with FMI. Then this crazy group out of Canada comes and, and buys them, and that was in what two thousand nine? I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you were at the time you were still developing products, heavily involved with R and D, and and uh, and then when uh, Jim, Mister Jim Sherman, uh, made his retirement, you stepped up to the plate to lead the ship. Is that right? I did. You know, we have a guy here, the vice president Charlie Freeman, that I've always thought would get the job. Okay, and uh, and Charlie decided. That he didn't work, want to work more than two years, and he wasn't going to do it. So they didn't want to give it to him. And I found out about that, and I was like, "Damn, 
Yeah. You know, we don't want a stranger coming in here. So mm-hmm. I threw my hat in the ring. Yeah. And there you go. And like you said, the rest is history. So uh, you, you did, you mentioned base oils and uh, that was one thing that, you know, Matt and I have, have talked about and, and we figured, you know, to have you on to talk about base oils would probably make the most sense. You've got a lot of experience dealing with different types of base oils. Obviously the ABS 40 that we, that, you know, you guys made back in the day, I'm sure there was, there was a lot of research and time and lab uh, time spent figuring out which base oils from which, you know, part of the world would be the most cost effective and the most high performing. So, uh, you know, and, and Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but should we talk about base oils now? I think the listeners are ready for some technical stuff here. Well, we've intentionally avoided it, if you can recall from previous episodes, and it, it is a fairly elaborate topic, but um, Baxter actually presented a, a paper at the AAD Fluids Conference that um, uh, a couple of us helped write. It was, it was a really good learning experience for me just to actually knuckle down and, and go into the depths. Yeah. Um, but... Clearly, you know, Baxter, you know this stuff like the back of your hands, and and I think, you know, anything you could include, just your thoughts in general, um, what people need to look out for, given all the confusion out there, um, I guess we're, we're all ears. So where, where would you start? What do you think people need to hear? Well, I guess I, I would start by saying, you know, oil-based mud, we all know that it, it has some great performance characteristics, and uh, and the reason it we do, it does, is because it it, it wets the formation with oil and keeps the water off the formation and, and allows you to do all the things that I'm sure that y'all shared with, with the audience. But the particular oil that is the base fluid for that oil-based mud can change uh, the functionality of the mud. Uh, I'll just start by, by talking about diesel as a base fluid because that's really has been the most common one over the the years mm-hmm. uh, because it's readily obtainable. And it just so happens that diesel has the right molecular weight range and uh, viscosity range to make a good drilling fluid. So quite by accident, it qualified as a pretty good fluid right out of the gate. Right. Um, I won't go into when it was first used. I've, I've read and heard three or four different stories, people claiming for the first oil-based mud, but it's older than I am. It's been around a while. Mm-hmm. Well, as time goes on, uh, you know, bright engineers are always coming through every generation, and people are thinking, and guys would say, I wonder if there's a better fluid out there that we could use, or at least can we get something that has less odor uh, and uh, or maybe is less toxic. So... The next class of fluids that were used were what I would call mineral oils. Uh, and there were various and sundry ones, lightly treated uh, cuts out of refineries and so on and so forth. And then the big guys, uh, Exxon, developed a product called Escade 110. And then Conoco developed a product called LVT-200. Hmm. And to my knowledge, these are the two first purpose-built molecules to, to replace diesel with. And they're quite a bit cleaner than, than diesel. And when I say cleaner, diesel has varying amounts, depending on the, the refinery it comes from, uh, of aromatic compounds in it. So SK-110 and LVT-200, uh, they had a, a viscosity that was a little better than, than diesel. They were thinner. 
they were cleaner. Uh, people noticed that they drill faster with them, and they became popular drilling fluids, and still are in some applications uh, due to those properties. Uh, one of the thing about about diesel is that its viscosity and its amount of aromatics and uh, its aniline point uh, changes from refinery to refinery, mm. almost truckload to truckload. It's built on a combustion spec. It's not designed as a drilling fluid. You know, so if you're an engineer and you're wanting consistency of product, then you, you may need to want to think about moving away from diesel. Gotcha. Because of that. You know, and the properties we look at in these oils are what do we look for. We look at handling point. We look at uh, flash point, pour point, and viscosity. That's, that's the big four. Okay. Do you mind if I chat about those a little no, bit? please do. Uh, the one that I think is the most crazy is aniline point. Um, aniline point, aniline, the molecule, I guess I would describe it as benzylamine, right? It's got an amino group attached to a benzene ring, uh, and it's a solid at room temperature, stinks, nasty. And basically, the aniline point is, is when a fluid... Uh, uh, an oil becomes miscible. The temperature with that fluid becomes miscible with aniline. Hmm. Now, what in the world does that have to do with drilling a well? <laughs> Not much. Right. What it is, it's a relatively decent indicator of the amount of aromatics in a fluid. Mm -hmm. And then we worry about the amount of aromatics in the fluid for toxicity, and also for uh, implications regarding our elastomers. Right. And for all extensive purposes, the higher is the better, correct? That is correct. The, uh, the higher the aniline point means the, basically the less aromatic characteristics the fluid has and the less aggressive it will be to your elast elastomers. But then I could make you a a fluid that you could make a mud out of that would have an excellent aniline point and but would eat your elastomers like candy. So it's it's really an old, old test used for the wrong application. But like many things we have to deal with, it's the best we got, so we put up with it. And I mean, some of the debate even is, you know, you hear people, oh, this has got a much higher aniline point, and you say, well, it's that's nice, but uh, we don't really know how much equipment gets torn up right now because of elastomer failures when we're using diesel all the time. Um, and so it begs the question, you know, did they figure it out in the elastomer world? What is, you know, is this even a relevant benchmark anymore? Exactly. I mean, I, it's, it'd be a curious thing to know. Uh, when was the Allen point developed? It's probably in the twenties, you know, and it wasn't for drilling fluid. I promise you that. Okay. Another about that one. Um, the next one that we worry about is this, Viscosity, you know, viscosity is primarily a function of molecular weight of these hydrocarbons. Uh, you can tweak it a little bit by how the, the, the molecule is designed, if you will, but it's really about molecular weight. Um, the one that the structure of the molecule really affects the most is the pore point. Um, 
For instance, C-16, I think you would call that hexadecane. So I'm talking six carbons all in a row, a classic paraffin. Uh, that'd be 32 hydrogens plus one on each end, so it'd be C-16H-34. That little guy, C-16, is just about the perfect molecular weight for a drilling fluid uh, to get the, the viscosity you want and the flash points you want. But it would have a pull point of room temperature somewhere around, if I remember, something around 63, 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Because it's a straight chain paraffin, um, I can unsaturate one end of it and call it uh, an alpha olefin, and that drops the pull point, oh, probably down to somewhere around freezing. And then I can move that, that unsaturation inside the molecule, and depending on whether that was a cis or a trans, uh, orientation, I could drop it even further. Cis and trans, you know what that's about? You hear, you hear it when people talk about uh, trans, cis and trans unsaturated fats or, or trans unsaturated fat. Okay. Cis means when you have a double bond, on one side you would have two hydrogens and then the other side you'd have the two carbons going off. Trans would mean with a double bond, the hydrogens would be opposite and the carbons would be opposite. It's actually a fixed, different orientation in space uh, that causes uh, a different structure. When it's a trans orientation, the dadgum thing doesn't bend much. It almost looks like a saturated hydrocarbon. Uh, when it's a cis, it puts a big kink in the molecule. and just like I started with C16 and, and told you about the olefins going down, I could tell you, you could give me 16 carbons and all the hydrogens, and I could arrange them in a very branch structure, and I could get the pull point down to probably below minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit Celsius. Yeah, it's all about how I think of, I think of the pull point uh, or melting point, basically in terms of how the molecules can quit vi vibrating and, and kind of lay down next to each other and go to sleep, form a crystal. And if they're real straight, they have no problem doing that. Just like that's why you don't want the trans unsaturated fats in your body, because then they're like trans unsaturated fats are like saturated fats, and the higher molecular weight ones will be solid at room temperature, and you don't want solid fats in your Right, right. That makes sense. And you want your unsaturated to be cis. Now, I bet you if you looked at the, the omega ones and threes that they tout, I, I bet you can find that they're probably cis orientation, which makes them kinky. Huh. So, interesting. So kinky's good when it comes to these things. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. <laughs> well, it's good for poor point. Gotcha. And then, of course, when you look these things up, if you look up uh, a molecule like uh, we said, hexadecane. Well, you'll find melting point. You won't find pour point because you refer to it as melting point when it's a single species. But when it's a blend, you know, the different little things start crystallizing at different temperatures. So we have to, we have to measure a pour point 
where it becomes too thick to actually pour. It's not the melting point, but they're similar. Gotcha. Uh, so with regards to different base oils is, you know, and you've kind of touched on it, but when designing a, diff- a drilling fluid, obviously offshore, diff- you know, they have certain regulations versus onshore. In Canada, you have different temperatures, but overall, when you're looking at these base oils, is there something that you really key in on that would uh, give it a better performing characteristics, assuming cost is negligible? I mean, what would be the ideal base oil for drilling fluids? Like I said, assuming, you know, cost was, was, was not part of the equation. Assuming cost was not part of the equation, then I would want uh, a very low viscosity. Uh, I would probably go lower than standard, standard use. Um, I would want a, a very high um, flash point, a very low vapor point, vapor pressure, which means basically I'm saying I'm, it would be odor-free. So I'd want it to be odor-free. And, uh, and what else did I say? Oh, I would love for it to have some unsaturation as far as uh, carbon-carbon double bonds would be nice to have in there. That gives you quicker biodegradability. And then if you want to cheat and say we're not just going to look at hydrocarbons, but we're going to also allow oxygen in the game, then I'd love to have it have oxygen in the molecular structure somewhere. That really boosts. Biodegradation. Ah, okay. That's a tricky thing to do, though, because you know you're, you're generally talking about doing esters when you do that, right? And, and esters have problems in our muds, uh, with, you know, withholding. Let me see. Esters have problems in our muds, withstanding the alkalinity and uh, the hydrolysis that they undergo. Interesting. So does does something like that even exist on the market? Maybe not for drilling fluids, but. And, and the reason I ask is, you know, obviously there's a lot of operators and a lot of companies out there really spending some capital on green energy. Um, you know, down here in the United States, we still use diesel as a base fluid. But, you know, in Canada, even when I was up there back in the early 2000s, um, diesel was non-existent. So they're using things like distillates and things of that nature. But do you think the future of base oils or drilling fluids in general would move towards something like that, even though it's so capital intensive? Well. Um, that kind of segues into the rest of the history of it. I stopped at the Escade and, and the LVT 200. Um, in the 90s, there has been a continual pressure to remove sulfur from diesel and from fuel oils. And the technology that has been developed to do that has also resulted in the capabilities of refineries producing much cleaner products uh, at a reasonable price. Mm. So right now, I can get uh, I can get a an oil, a hydrocarbon that has the same cleanliness and the same when I say cleanliness, lack of aromatics, mm-hmm. uh, the same properties as far as far as what matters for drilling a, a well. At a price even lower than a than a molecule that was created from something besides hydrocarbon. There's always been a, a battle in our industry over what is what is called synthetic when it comes to a base oil. Right, right. Uh, the 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 first ABS forty system we were using back in you know the 
mid to late nineties. It was based on uh, oils that were made with the technology that's used to make what they call synthetic motor oils. Mm. That's a that's a patented technology by a major, and it's I think the process is called uh, hydro isomerization. So not only are they hydro treating, but they're breaking bonds. And they're isomerizing these things. They're making them more branched while they're doing it. And that's that's how they come up with these super duper lubricants for uh, motor oils and such. Well, when they do that, they always generate some little fellas, uh, the lower molecular weight guys, mm-hmm. that are available to use for something else. And those make great drilling fluids. Ah. So I was buying... The bulk of my product, I was using a blend. You know me, I don't do anything straight. <laughs> Including your wine. <laughs> I was doing a blend. Uh, it was about, oh, 70% from, from Petro-Canada and 30% from uh, uh, Conoco Westlake, where they do a, the same, they have that same technology to make base, what they call base oils for, for building lubricants. Okay. And so we called it synthetic. I mean, because the guy selling us the product called it synthetic. Right, right. Um, well, it was, it originated from the original source was crude. So people don't like that. There are some people that think it's got, the original source has to be from natural gas mm. before it's called synthetic. Right. Now, now give me a break. What's what's the difference there? <laughs> You're asking the wrong person. You know, <laughs> I, I don't get it. Or, just don't get it. But anyhow. it's all public perception. <laughs> yeah, it's and it was people jockeying for for market share. We didn't have a, a dog. We didn't have a you know a dog in that fight at all. Right. I just wanted product. But, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> makes sense. So anyway, there was a big big tussle about all that, and the EPA got tired of of the fight, and they changed their rigs around the turn of the century, and they said we're going to call it for offshore use a non-aqueous drilling fluid, and it has to meet these certain test parameters. And if it does, then you're free to use it. Hmm. Well, that was quite of a, I, was, I wasn't involved at the committees, but I did attend some of the stuff, and I recall all that. Anyway, to make a long story short, what evolved out of that was a very narrow selection of what you could use. I bet. And it's basically... Uh, 1618 uh, internal olefin. Uh, Shell's got a product, 1518, that I could make work. Uh, and then you could use esters because esters were very biodegradable. Uh, but then esters have the other problems. Mm. Now, the, the, the Canadian type products wouldn't work because they, they didn't pass a couple of the little toxicity tests. Ah. Uh. Yeah, I mean, the toxicity stuff is interesting because it's benchmarked to IO-1618. And so your oil has to meet. So IO-1618 obviously will pass because it is the standard. And then any other oil has to meet or exceed that. And it's, of course, what type of, you know, mycid shrimp specifically and, yeah. and all that. And so uh, it's extremely frustrating, but I guess it was... To Baxter's point, just all the confusion and frustration. They just said, "Well, we're just going to pick one and tell everybody to, you know, meet or exceed this, and that's going to be the standard." Hmm. So, with these different types of base oils that you're talking about, Baxter, how how do they actually 
um, like how do they act within a drilling fluid? Like if you're using certain base oils and certain systems, do you have to design them different with different products or does a lot of this work as a sort of one fit all type of deal? Um, you do have to pay attention to, to the base fluid. Uh, I want to touch on the esters for a second. If you have esters yeah. in the drilling fluid, esters are the reaction product of a fatty acid or of a carboxylic acid and an alcohol. And if you've had your chemistry, you know that's a reversible uh, reversible equation. So it's not a very strongly held molecule. And what can happen to the esters if you put them in your mud uh, and you hit high pH and you hit calcium, um, that will hydrolyze and you'll break it back into the alcohol and the acid, and that can be disastrous for a drilling fluid. So mm. esters have kind of fallen out of favor because of that tendency. They're not bulletproof. So I kind of leave them out of the rest of the equation. And now we're talking about, okay, uh, like a really clean, clean synthetic versus a diesel. Uh, you know, diesel is a wide mixture of molecules, typically between around 10 to 20. Uh, carbons in length, and it'll have some paraffins, and it'll have some some aromatics in it, and it'll have some uh, naphthenics in it, uh, and that mixture kind of makes it a little more robust when it comes to reacting with, like some of our products, the viscosifiers, right, and uh, the fluid loss agents. Uh, so when you go to that quote synthetic, the clean fluids that are that are more simple chemistry. And don't have that aromatic in them, and that wide range maybe of, of molecular weights, they need a little help when it comes to getting the viscosity right and the fluid loss control right. So you have to use, even the emulsion, you have to use a quite often a little bit more expensive product, unfortunately. So not only is the base fluid more costly, but the, the amount it costs to just treat it and get your properties where you want it, obviously, is, is, is up there as well. A, a little bit, unfortunately. You know, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm a big proponent of it. I wish we didn't use diesel, but sure. And as long as it's like it is and there's a significant cost difference between the two, you know what people are going to do. They're going to go as cheap as they can. Of course. Yeah. And the, the topic of the paper um, was about just different properties you should look for in a base oil. Um, it's on the AED website. Um, it, it's and basically it proposes. You know how, how would we make the move if we ever, as an industry, decided to make the switch? Yeah. Um, just because people plug a base oil without talking about the properties, and um, lots of people call things synthetic. Lots of people call things fr- environmentally friendly, um, and lots of people claim that their base oil drills faster or what have you. And and what we find is, well, if you look at the physical properties and the environmental characteristics you can break those down and you don't have to pick a molecule you can set some boundaries and find things that will fall in that niche of course um so that was a lot of the the subject and and probably one of the things i enjoyed the most with baxter presenting this paper i need to i need to steal this technique to demonstrate how how a safe of an oil you could get he drank some of some base oil at the end of his presentation and he said now, this base oil has a pretty strong laxative effect, so could you please keep your questions to a minimum? <laughs> um, and with that, dropped the microphone and walked out of the room. It was it was pretty amazing. You missed out if you weren't there. That's priceless. Yeah, that was something uh, funny when I first actually got to Pennsylvania. Uh, 
you and Nick Lannermeyer went and did uh, a presentation, I believe, and you did the same thing. And, and the story that, that precedes that drinking of that, uh, the ABS 40 is pretty comical, but I like to see how you're sticking true to your guns and, and showing people the, the, you know, the, how safe it could be. So we appreciate your dedication and, uh, and well, <laughs> you know, I've done it several times. Basically these, these foods I'm talking about are like, uh, they're like baby oil without the fragrance. Yeah. You know, or maybe mineral oil that you get that's a little thicker than kind of in between the two. Sure. There's nothing in there that's going to hurt you. And other, l- other than it, it might, you know, help lubricate. The yeah. Well, and, and that's pro- for a lot of people, it's probably not a bad thing to send, <laughs> a, send a sweep through the old system <laughs> every once go. in a while. <laughs> there you go. So, so, Baxter, what would you say uh, if you had a crystal ball? What does the future look like or, or some of the technologies that we can see coming down the pipeline with regards to, to base oils or drilling fluids for that? matter well when it comes to base oils i think that uh, the capacity to generate uh molecules that are specifically suited for the characteristics for an ideal drilling fluid is here and it's only going to get greater as long as we're still refining and because the technology of the catalyst used and there's so much pressure on the refiners to to create clean products that clean is clean is here and they we can achieve those by starting with a crude but actually what they start with at these facilities is not crude it's something that looks almost water white it's already been processed that much and they go through these big units that that really polish the, the fire out of it uh and they can do it at a price that that is is decent uh, it's going to be higher, always will be higher than diesel because they start with something that's basically diesel that has been cleaned up and then they super clean it, you know. Uh, and there's a, there's capacity to do a lot of that if if it's ever required. Uh, you know, we still use it from time to time. You'll get a customer that's, that's drilling in a neighborhood and he doesn't want the odor, so we can go find those materials. We can do it. And we ha- we've drilled thousands and thousands of wells with those type base fluids. Right. It used to be our forte. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Matt, you got any more questions with regards to base oils, bud? I don't think I have anything with regards to base oils. It's just helpful. I, I don't know. This information is hard to dig up is, is kind of how it feels. It's just you have to know it, it. It feels some way. So it's really nice to hear about that. Um, you know, Baxter, I'd say, you know, as follow up um, outside of, of the realm of, base oils and and technology and that sort of thing you've obviously seen a few things um you know what do you think um as far as with the respect of having would you say 38 years of of oil field experience um i mean you hear the stories people people go on say been there done that upturn downturn all that is is there anything any big kind of theme or lesson you feel like you've carried with you throughout your career that's kind of helped you move along I would say always have faith that you can figure out a better way to do something. Uh, and it's not always me that's done it, but I mean, I've been involved in some of the things with bit design and, and drilling fluids and, and I've sat and watched and what's gone on with the directional drilling tools. And it just amazes me that, that, that we've been able to come this far with the technology in the last, uh, Oh, 30 years, you know, 25 years. It's really come a long ways. 
we're drilling these wells so much faster, so much cheaper than we used to. And we always think we can't do it any faster. And I think we are kind of approaching a bit of a diminishing returns on that. But we're still going to do it faster. We're still going to do it better. We're going to learn. I think the challenges now are in that horizontal section. You know, it's all about the lubricity and the hole cleaning and really, really understanding that going forward so we can keep up with these guys when they when they want to drill 3,000 foot in 12 hours, you know. Hmm. Right, yeah. right. Well, we certainly have the man in the right seat to help navigate that ship. And so uh, one final question I had more sort of on the personal side of things is, you know, do you have any sort of daily habits or routines? Um, I, you obviously are heavily involved with dif- different hobbies and tinkering a lot, you know, with a lot of different things. But is there anything else that kind of helps you disconnect from the day-to-day grind? And especially as, you know, being a, you know, president of a, you know, one of the largest drilling fluid companies in the nation, uh, you know, what, what helps keep your mindset engaged to, to continue to just keep grinding day in and day out? Because in our industry, it's 24-7, 365. So how, how do you manage that? Well, it's my little side projects. It's yeah. it's the rose hybridization. I do that. Um, it's uh, it's following thoroughbred pedigrees of certain lines of horses that I've that I've followed for years. Mm-hmm. I know his sons and grandsons, and I look for his daughters. Uh, I, I look at horses at night just to put myself to sleep. Sure, it's it's dreaming up like I'm working on a new breed of chickens. Uh, <laughs> nice. And uh, oh, you laugh. I'll. Before I die, I will be known more about my chickens than I will anything oil field. I promise you. Well, I eat a lot of chickens, so I'm <laughs> excited to, to see how that goes down for sure. Me too. You know, I'll, I've always got something other than the than this to try to because if I don't, I won't ever shut my brain off. Right. So I got to think of something else for a while. Yeah, most certainly. Well, and I guess the, the other thing I, I wanted to ask before we close is. Just as a manager, um, you know, I haven't been with AES nearly as long, just a couple of years. And um, this has been the most fun place to work. Uh, I mean, everybody cares about each other. It's just, it's, it's so much fun. And it, you can tell it, it comes from the top. And I guess when it's one of those, I've just, I got so used to structure in other organizations where it was, we need to keep an eye on people and keep reporting back. And it was almost like there wasn't trust there. And here it's, we hired you because we trust you. Go do it. That's me. That's um, me. That's me. It's because, <laughs> I, you know, I've seen too many people that are afraid to hire talented folks, and they get afraid when the talented folk is coming up. Mm. We're not going to have that here. Right. We're going to hire the best, and we're going we're gonna to work together well, and we're not going to feel threatened by anybody. I'm not threatened by any of you guys, so therefore, I'm going to let y'all go do your thing. I, I cannot micromanage people it's just not my style mm-hmm. and i think it's a mistake i think you hand you you hire the best you you put them on a path i'd much rather i call it you know i want to hire a racehorse that all i got to do is is tap every now and then and keep it going in the right direction it's a great analogy rather than rather than a mule i got to drag around by a halter you know <laughs> yeah no that's that's a great analogy. it's a lot easier to just kind of give a little guidance and suggestion every now and then than having to teach them. And that's not in me. I don't have time to do it. I'd rather be thinking about chickens or, yeah. <laughs> or, or base fluids, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, one of the first things I said after about six months at AES is I had no idea what I was capable of when I was given the freedom to actually do it. Um, and I think that's just a real testament to your management style and uh, how thankful I am to be here 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's just testament. The style's not going to work everywhere. Sure. It's a testament to you guys and the rest of the group, you see. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we got to keep keep making sure we hire the best of the best. Yep. So this, this <clears throat> setup works because this setup would fail pretty quickly if we got a few bad apples in here. Yeah, sure. No, most definitely. It's it's all about having the right team and and again, I I repeat the, you know, the buzzword, but it's true is just the culture that we set here and it's it's set by yourself and the rest of the upper management. So, I want to give a shout out to you, you know, the rest of the the uppers and and you know, there's too many to name, but uh for all of you listening out there, we appreciate all the hard work, the dedication, the sleepless nights and uh for all the, you know, things we do for the oil field, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for it. So, I'm extremely grateful. Um, unless you gentlemen have any closing last words, Baxter, anything? Go Astros, man. Go Astros. That's Go Astros. Take it back. All right. Well, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do us a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. If you have any feedback or want to hit us up at flowlinepodcast at aesfluids.com, Matt and I will be sure to reach back out. All right, everybody. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.